Well, once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered innocent Islamic people and extremists now control much of the country. The Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. News flash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. Truth About Muslims, Episode 7. Alright, today's topic is uh, Muslims, are they political pawns? We've got a big midterm election coming up tomorrow in South Carolina. Right, but first, before we go any further, we want to talk about our sponsors. 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 Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Right, love that school. And also Zwemer Center. They've been focusing on Muslims since before it was actually cool in, yeah. in the media. In 35 years. 1979. Mm-hmm. So check them both out at ciu.edu and then uh, zwemercenter.com. Right, so uh, did you like that kind of how we split that up? Yeah, yeah, know, that worked. That we don't even plan that; it just kind of happens naturally. All right, so let's first talk about uh, yeah, what what <laughs> what's been happening? Uh, I was I was telling Trevor about uh, Saturday Night Live this last Saturday. Uh, Chris Rock hosted the show, and he really did some interesting things. Yeah, it's always interesting when you have something tragic in a society and you're not sure when you can begin making jokes about it. And apparently, Chris Rock has decided now is the time. <laughs> right. I mean. He talks about the Freedom Towers. Of course, uh, just found out that uh, they're they're the stores. I guess it's opening. They're yeah. they're moving in. I think tenants are moving in today. Office uh, offices have been rented. Right, and stores so and everything. Chris Rock in his monologue has a lot to say about the Freedom Towers. How he'll never go into one of those things. And um, I don't know. Like it, it is a kind of attention. I think in one point um, in people's life, I think comedy is something that really does heal. Uh, something to be able to laugh at, maybe even a type of normalizing. Yeah, right? you know whenever you start making jokes and then you see people's faces and it's just too soon. Right, and it did have that feel, right? Like it So did. you're watching the video, and you guys can check this out on like Hulu or whatever, but like it, it's you can tell the audience is not sure if they should laugh, clap, what they should do. There's some well, points it's, it's, it's New York silent. City. Right, it's New York City, so it's really, I mean, it's there. It's, the, it's at their home. And he even brings up the Boston Marathon bombing uh, and is, is making jokes about it. So I, I don't know. Um, and not only that, but they had a whole skit on ISIS and right, uh, Shark, Shark Tank. Tank. Yeah. And so it's, it's worth checking out because I think it gives a little bit of a hint as to where we're at. Culturally, um, you know, comedians do a, a lot like musicians. The right. artists kind of show where you're at as a culture, and you right. can kind of just evaluate these cultural texts. And I think that Saturday Night Live, although some may disagree, I think Saturday Night Live is a good cultural text. It is. It is, because it kind of gives you an idea of what uh, people are thinking or, or actually even shape what people are thinking. Because maybe uh, Chris Rock is able to laugh at this stuff, and maybe he's teaching Americans how to laugh at this stuff, and therefore now more comedians are going to be following suit. But the question I have, for us, um, and I'd like to hear from you listeners too, is uh, is uh, comedy helpful to the church uh, and her view of Muslims? Or does this mm. hurt? Does it, mm. does it really kind of create that division still? Caricature, uh, caricaturizing? Caricaturizing? Uh, I wish I could talk. Um, our view of Muslims. Yeah. You know? and, and, uh, and like ISIS. And I know that you know, the argument would be, you know what? They weren't, they weren't making fun of Muslims, right? But then you have ISIS, these guys... 
uh, with Arabic writing on these billboards as they're trying to make their pitch to to the Shark Tank, you know, the the fake Shark Tank cast. Well, that's kind of the point, and we're going to get into that a little bit later in the show. But in, in some ways, they were making fun of Muslims right. because, on the one hand, people want to disassociate ISIS from Islam, but on the other hand, Islam is uh, or ISIS is very much much connecting themselves with Islam. So it, right. Yeah, it it was a very interesting show. It's worth checking out, and I think we need to put in the show notes also, uh, Howard. You remember the uh, uh, the parody? I believe it, it was some some Pakistani Muslims that put on a parody about ISIS themselves. So even the Muslim world is beginning to uh, joke and kind of make light of some of these things that are happening because I think it le- at least creates a space where people can talk. And so right, and I think it also is an interesting tool to. Um for uh, for those Muslims that aren't you know associating them with, with, with themselves with ISIS to separate themselves from ISIS by making fun of them, right? Exactly. Um, but I, th- I don't know. It feels different when Americans are doing it, and well, not well non-Muslim Americans like Chris Rock are doing go. it, or the cast of SNL are doing it, as opposed to actual Muslims that are saying, "Hey, no, this is not who we are," and therefore make fun of it. I don't know. It just feels different. It's kind of like when I can make fun of Asians because I'm Asian. There you go. You That's know? right. But when I do it, somehow it's not cool. Right. So it's, it is interesting. And I, I, I'm not saying that we have an answer. I have an answer. Um, I just find it interesting that there is this cultural dynamic that comedy brings and, and kind of shifts the way we think about things. Yeah. But it does prove the point. I think... Um I was teaching a seminar this past weekend, actually last week, and uh, I said, uh, they asked me to give a little bit of an overview of what the seminar was going to be so that people could attend, and I said, you know, we're going to talk about Muslims, we're going to talk about ISIS, because Muslims, ISIS, Muslim extremism, Islam, Muhammad, it's like talking about the weather now, it's something that people just talk about. Right, it's everywhere. And so I think Saturday Night Live proved that point. Uh, one of my colleagues said, well, maybe they just talk around, about it so much around here because we work at a Christian institution of higher learning. And I thought, no, I think this is pretty much the conversation going around um, uh, in the United States. And one thing that I want to bring up, because I know today's topic is uh, about politics because we have an election tomorrow, but uh, we had a, uh, gosh, I can't say the... The senator's name. It was a uh, chief of staff of one of the uh, representatives that wanted to study at the Zwemer Center. He didn't end up coming to study, but he did come to uh, view the program, have lunch, and just kind of discuss uh, studying for his master's degree at Columbia International University through the Zwemer Center. And when I asked him, uh, what, what has piqued your interest in studying Islam? It was fascinating. He said that Islam is all anybody wants to talk about in Washington. Really? Yeah. And he said the problem was that all of these people were talking about Islam. All of these people had all of these opinions about Islam. And his conclusion was that nobody really knew what they were talking about. You know, uh, we're going to talk about Reza Aslan. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Aslan. Aslan. <laughs> we, we Chronicles can, of Aslan. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously um, a C.S. But, Lewis fan. But he makes this cool point uh, in one of his video interviews on Huffington Post. And he's talking about how, like Ben Affleck, you know, with his debate with Bill Maher and Sam Harris, he says Bill uh, Ben Affleck is just this kind of normal guy um, that doesn't know much about religion. And he puts Sam Harris in that same group. Yeah. And Sam Harris touts himself as somebody that knows a lot about Islam. But I, you know, I do think it is uh, it is peculiar that there's a lot of people talking about Islam, but don't really know what it is. 
No, and that's a scary thing when everybody has sort of these uh, hard and fast opinions about something, especially when it includes 1.6 billion people. Right, because this is real. I mean, we're not talking about you know some fictitious group of people. We're talking about people that are in our country, that are Americans, that are blue, uh, blue blooded, <laughs> red blooded <laughs> Americans, blue blooded Americans, <laughs> red blooded Americans. Right, that that uh, that care about our country, and at the same time. Um, we're we're handling it, I think, with uh, uh, irresponsibly. I think in a lot of cases. The the question today uh, regarding Islam and politics, and I think the reason that this is so uh, important is you'll see whenever there's an election coming up, whether it's a midterm election or a presidential election. More and more, uh, the topics begin to shift towards radical Islam. It almost becomes a, uh, uh, what would you call it, like a, a political slogan. Right. So uh, I started to look and see, I wondered if anybody had done any research. And if, you, if you're aware of a research project that's been done on this, I'm curious. Um, has anybody done any research looking at the uh, media with Muslims whether or not that escalates during election years. I was just curious myself. And what did you find? No, I couldn't find anything. I was actually um, looking, and I couldn't find anything before the show, but I was kind of curious as to whether or not that was true, because it seems that way. Right. And I don't know if I'm just, you know, seems that way to me. But here's, here's kind of the thing that I did come up with as I was searching that out, is that, uh, you know, we tend to think of our perception as uh, reality, You've heard that saying, right? Perception is reality. Right. What we think is what we, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is what people perceive of Muslim immigrants in the United States. Are you ready? Bring it. In 14 different countries, this survey was done. And they would ask them, what percentage of your population do you think are Muslim? The average American that they asked believed that 15% of the American population was Muslim. Okay. The actual percentage of Muslims in the United States is 1% or a little less than 1%. Get out of here. Yeah, so they're 15% versus 1%. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Now, here's the here's the catch, right? I mean, if people believe that Muslims represent 15% of American citizens, you can imagine why they could very easily become political uh, pawns, as it says in the title of the show. Right. And so, but one percent. Well, Pew Research has it at zero point six percent. Okay, that's still a tiny, tiny, tiny number. No, it is. It is. But we perceive Muslims to be so, uh, you know, just sort of widespread throughout American culture, and you know, uh, you can just begin to think that um, there is Muslims on every corner. And the reality is, it's a pretty small number. It's a really insignificant number of Muslims living in the United States. Right. So, but here's the other one that was really interesting. They asked them, what do you believe the percentage of Christians are in the United States? Okay, what, what is this one? They believe that the number of Christians was 56%, when in reality it is, are you ready? Drum roll. I, I can't even make that with my mouth. I can't either. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's oh, pretty that good. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, actually. All right, so they believed it was 56% okay. of uh, Americans are Christian. And in reality, it's 78%. What? 78%. What? <laughs> so here, here's what it comes down to. 
when asked about uh, Muslims, they way overestimated, and when asked about Christians, they way underestimated. Right. And, and so that, that, that's the perception uh, held by a lot of Americans. Okay, and so when we're talking about Christians, because I know this is what people are going to be thinking, they basically ask, do you believe in Jesus? Well, of course, in that number, they're including uh, evangelicals, Protestants, Catholics. Right, all together. Exactly. Okay. All right, so 70, that's, that's a ridiculous number, but okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot. But, but to, if, you, if you have this perception as a believer that, well, first of all, as a believer, I know that I'm in the minority. Right. You and start that to, Muslims are creeping to become the majority. Right. That's going to affect the way in which you view the world. Well, you have in the media all the time people talking about birth rates, especially in Europe, right? Muslim birth rates are like quadruple or some you know, ridiculous number beyond what normal Europeans are birthing. Right, because uh, the Muslims are just popping out babies, apparently baby factories, and uh, and so people are afraid. They're like, well, you know, by this time, you know, in ten years or fifteen years, th- you know, the the general population will be the minority. Okay, so I saw that YouTube video, and you even have they're they're quoting in the video Muammar Gaddafi. Okay, which I'm thinking, really, we're going to take Muammar Gaddafi's sort of word on how uh, Muslims are going to take over the world. Like they're using it as a quote. Like you see, even Muammar Gaddafi has said this. Okay. Anyway, I haven't seen the video. So what does it say? What's, what's oh, going on? Oh man, this is a real. We got to put uh, right, add that to the show I'll notes. There's a, there's a YouTube video that starts off with like dun uh, dun 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 dun, and it's like Muslim immigration. I, it, it almost sounds like one of those guys doing a. Uh, uh, a, a movie uh, preview or a trailer. trailer yeah. So it's like Muslim immigration. Within 20 years, Russia will become a hundred percent or a majority Muslim country. The entire Soviet Union is going to, and it's just kind of this scary, like, Oh my goodness, <laughs> I had no idea. You know, France is going to be Muslim in 10 years. Uh, Russia is going to be Muslim in 20 years. China is going to be Muslim. And, and the whole point of the video is the world is going to be Muslim in like 50 years. Right. And, and so they, they do the mathematics for you. They actually show you based on birth rate because the so average... So it's, it's by birth rate. It's not through, you know, like where they're reaching out and converting people to Muslim to Islam. No, no. It's, it's just birth rate. It's, it's just birth rate. Birth rate. Okay. So they do this, uh, this model and they show you that the average birth rate in France for a, a non-Muslim French citizen is, you know, one... Okay. And, the, and the birth rate, uh, or less than one, I think it was, it was like 0.8%. I don't know what 8% of a child looks like, but 0.8%. Right. And then the average birth rate of a Muslim was like, you know, seven. And so they did the mathematics and Wait, show you. did it really 20- say seven? Yeah. No, I'm serious, man. I, I want to play the video right now just so we can see it. And so you're you're watching it and you're just sitting there like, oh my goodness. It's over. You know, like. We had a good run, guys. <laughs> France is going to be Muslim in 10 years. What else? Oh, Russia, too. Okay. Germany, too. Norway, too. Belgium, too. And so you just start to have this, you know, this footage. And then all of a sudden, there's just no hope. And then they get to America. And here was the kicker. You'll get You'll like this, Howard. Okay. The only thing that was keeping America not majority Muslim within like 10 years, it's going to take like 25 years or something ridiculous like that, is the Hispanic population. I was just going to say the Hispanics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. So uh, that's a shout out to mi madre, Arolita Escobar. Um, yeah. So the, the Hispanic population is actually what's keeping the Muslim population at bay. And so you watch this and... It's pretty convincing, and I've seen it. Uh, churches have used it in their uh, um, services because at the end, and I don't know who produced it, but at the end it was basically like, so get out there and share the gospel with Muslims before they take over the world. Wow. 
But so, here, here's so fear, fear tactic. <laughs> it's a fear tactic, and it's utter and complete nonsense. Yeah, tell me, enlighten me, because I'm kind of scared. Howard's looking it up right now I just on think his of computer. Like, like, I had no idea. I just think of an invasion of babies. <laughs> <laughs> little little uh, Muslim in, uh, baby invaders. Right, That's the, just coming in. I'm like, oh no. Okay, so here's the idea. It's not a static model. Okay, so okay. Uh, think of Muslim friends that you have here in the United States. Maybe their parents come in and they have seven children because okay. the mortality rate, um, you know, is quite different in say Pakistan or Afghanistan oh, or right. Iraq. Right. So it is quite normal to have seven, six, you know, something uh, like that children. But you come to the United States. So are your seven children also going to have seven children? Well, the answer is no. Right, because they're going to fall into the culture, enculturation, basically. They're going to, uh, yeah, they're going to acculturate. They're going to lose some of their old culture, take on some new culture. They'll probably, within that second generation, marry a fellow Muslim, probably even from the same ethnic background. But what about the next generation, the third generation? And then eventually you end up with a fourth generation that is saying, well, I don't even know if I want to marry somebody from that cultural background. They might consider themselves more American than they do uh, Iraqi, they might consider themselves not even Muslim or just Muslim in name only. They right. might not even marry a fellow Muslim. They might not have kids at all. Yeah, actually, not even fourth generation. Like if you look in Koreans, I'm I'm Korean. There we go. Let's get personal. Howard, tell us about the first generation Korean because you you can speak to this, right? I mean, first right. generation Koreans versus second generation Koreans. Yeah, is there some gaps there? Right. There's a huge difference, and it's a crisis because Koreans are staunchly Korean. Mm. They move to the states and they want their kids to be Korean. Mm-hmm. And not just in, you know, in, in skin color, uh, skin color, or just, you know, not just in, in name alone, but like for real, through and through. Uh, Food. Act, yeah. Culture. Language. Especially language. Uh, to know their history and all that kind of stuff. But you still find Koreans, uh, the, we call them second generation, the kids that were born uh, to immigrant parents in the United States. They're they're marrying Westerners. Or Well, wait or, a second. You married a Westerner. Right. So you're a classic example. I'm on the fringe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on a, I'm a, I'm daring. But that's a good example, right? right Koreans are experiencing the same thing. You can't assume because the first generation had these sort of uh this ethnic identity or right. these uh practices that were maybe religious or cultural, um political that those things are necessarily going to carry on. Right. And something that's really interesting is that my grandparents, they had like I'm not even kidding. My grandfather had two wives and I think he had like what? Six, yeah, at the same time in the not, United not, States. Not 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 uh um not married, you know, and divorced or lost one. No, I mean, he was married same time. So your grandfather was a polygamist? Correct. In the United States? No, he actually moved to the States with uh, his first wife. And Very the, the, interesting. And his second wife stayed in Korea. But he had, like, he had like 16 kids, maybe even more than that between the two. And my father, he only had two, me and my little sister. So, and then Howard picked up the pace. Right, I have five. Um, so I'm trying to meet in the middle, trying to be a little bit more, uh, you know, traditional, I guess. <laughs> Actually, my Howard wife retained that part of his Korean my wife, just, <laughs> my wife just really enjoyed being pregnant. She just loves babies. Oh so, man! But that, that's a good that's a good point. I mean, your 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 grandfather had sixteen. Uh, right. Your parents had two. Right. And so there's no. It's not a closed system where you can just do this exponential math mathematics and say, hey, this is what we're going to end up with. Right. Just theory. I mean, we know that the reality is not oftentimes line up with theory. 
But anyway, that video is a good example. It's another one of those sort of uh, fear tactics. But one of the other reasons that I think Muslims uh, always seem to come up to the forefront when it's an election year, I was kind of looking at some of the latest research that was done by the Pew Foundation, and one of them was uh, the public's view of the global threats facing the U.S. Guess what's at the very top? Number one, let me get that drum roll again. Number one, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Wait, that's the number one threat? The number one global threat facing the United States is ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Interesting. 70%. Above North Korea, above Iran and, and their nuclear program, above Russia and its tension with its neighbors, above Ebola, above... I can't get started on that. Above <laughs> above climate change, That's above really Israeli-Palestinian, ISIS, and Al-Qaeda. So you could understand if you're running for political office and you know that 70% of Americans see radical Islam as its number one global threat to our safety and well-being, then you have to talk about it. Right, that's the hot button. They're going to sit on that button all day long, just keep pushing that button, right? Exactly. So you uh, now they're obviously within the political parties. There's some uh, discrepancy. Uh, the Republican Party has uh, sees ISIS and is, uh, radical Islam as a higher threat than uh, the Democratic Party. So that's why you might see uh, Republican candidates speaking about it more than Democratic uh, candidates. Yeah, but the and see, this is the thing that we're kind of coming back to in the show is that the problem is I think these the the hot button per se is really affecting the way Americans think of Muslims. Yes, I mean we're painting in these broad strokes that every Muslim is ISIS. Ultimately, you're walking around afraid. Yeah, you know I didn't know the numbers were that high where they're just walking around thinking that this is the number one global threat to the U.S. is ISIS and Al Qaeda. Yeah, and. I don't know, man. So, like, back to our question on our show is, um, are Muslims political pawns? Well, I mean, they're certainly being used in some ways. Uh, whether we would want to say they're political pawns or not, we'll, we'll let the listeners decide. But one one of the statistics that I saw that was uh, fascinating. Okay, so you have Republicans there uh, right at about 78% that see... Um, ISIS is a major threat. So they're higher and you have the Democrats at 65%. So they're a little bit lower, but they also, that's a, that's a majority. Right. See ISIS is a uh, major threat. Uh, then you have the Tea Party. Okay. What, wouldn't that be on the Republican side? Well, they, they, uh, did an, a special, um, <laughs> survey of the Tea Party. Okay. Yeah. 91%. Of course. <laughs> so nine and 10, right? I mean, nine out of every 10 Tea Party members say that, yes, this is the, big threat is is isis so you're saying that the democrats republicans and tea party would actually agree on something this is something we can all agree on right and it's a hot button it's the hot button so this political season this is what people are going to be talking about yeah and that's why you see all of these ads talking about radical islam right and which leads me to uh this interview that was on huffington post with uh um john bennett oh this is our boom goes the dynamite section. Right. But even before, I want to kind of talk about some of the things that he says. I mean, he says some really inflammatory things that kind of lead me to questions that I want to ask of you. And I know that, you know, like right now, uh, there's other guys that you want to ask too, but just kind of want to hear your viewpoint. But the whole idea is Bennett is just talking about how Islam 
Well, the first thing he says that's really interesting is that Islam is not a religion. That's right. <laughs> Islam isn't even a religion. <laughs> he says it's a social political system that uses a deity to advance its agenda of global conquest. He's really excited about that, too, because every time he's interviewed, that's what he says. He's like got it memorized. That's Islam a, isn't even a religion. That's his hot button. So apparently, if you, are a, if you are a Muslim, then you're a part of this social political system. Yeah. So, okay, good. Well, uh, anyway, the point is that he says these interesting things. And one of the things that he says that I found that really kind of was made me question some stuff is about Islam. Is the root of Islam really uh, bringing us to be uh, bringing them to become terrorists like Sam Harris would would suggest or Bill Maher? Does that is the the does the Quran really support that? Right. Okay. so here's my view. Uh, First of all, I don't think that any non-Muslim should be making these huge claims about what Islam actually is. So, And that goes on both sides. Okay. So we, we have uh, both President Bush, uh, President Barack Obama, right. and I'm sure the next president as well will probably say the same thing. All three uh, will probably have the same conclusion that Islam is a religion of peace. Okay, yeah. So so both Bush and Obama, and I say whoever's elected next, will say Islam is a religion of peace. And then you have a uh, probably a, a larger majority of politicians that say um, that Islam is, in fact, violent, that the true nature of Islam is a religion of violence. And this has a lot of strong evangelical voices behind it, too. And I won't name any names, but you just need to go online and look. And there's a, there's a large group of evangelicals saying that Islam, through violence, intends to conquer the world. Right. And so my perspective is that I don't think that we need to be talking about Islam as a religion of peace or Islam as a religion of violence. I don't know that that Barack Obama, George W. Bush, or any of these evangelical leaders have the leg to stand on to say what Islam is because they're not practicing Muslims. Although some people would argue Barack Obama is a practicing Muslim. (laughs) I understand. Somebody are like, whoa, whoa, wait a second, wait a second. Obama is a Muslim. (laughs) No, uh, none of them are practicing Muslims. And so I don't think that they can, I don't think they should even be uh, trying to discuss what Islam is because they're not Muslim. We need to just ask the Muslims. Okay, but can't but we can talk about it though, right? As no, we can, Muslims, we can talk about it, and we can say that hey, certainly there are those Muslims out there that are peaceful, and so obviously there are Muslims that say Islam is a religion of peace, and then there are Muslims out there that are most certainly violent, and so we can say that Islam can be a religion of violence as well. You have both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. That's way too simplistic to take the complex religion of Islam that is 1.6 billion people that has been around uh, for more than a thousand years and has had all of these different expressions since the very beginning, right? You have opportunities for Islam to display itself in very uh, violent forms, and you have opportunities where Islam has, for instance, a golden age where it's at the height of society and it's producing some of the best architecture the world has seen, some of the best... Uh, you have astronomy, you have medicine, you have mathematics, you have philosophy, you have all of these wonderful things. It is like a renaissance before the renaissance ever happened. And so you cannot just say, well, if we're looking at ninth and 10th century Islam, that Islam is a religion of peace and uh, high, higher learning. Because the ninth and 10th century aren't the only centuries in which Islam has existed. But we don't like that, Trevor. No, it's so much easier to just make a simple statement, right? right. Islam is a religion of peace. I, I just Islam want, is a religion of violence. I just want three points. Just give me a yes or no. Yeah, just tell me what I need to know so I can just go away and make my own 
you know, conclusions. Well, let's do it with Christianity. No, I don't we need we? to, but no. that's not fair. <laughs> we, we're talking. Let's, let's pick a century, <laughs> all right, of Christian history. Right. Hey, you remember when we had three popes? Yeah. yeah, that was a good time. That was a really good time. Nobody would want to do that. Nobody would want to pick, say, mm, maybe the 13th, 12th century of right. Christianity and uh, go ahead and say, let's look at that century of Christianity. Let's take out the theologies that are being produced and right. let's go ahead and make an all-encompassing statement about what Christianity is based on that one particular time. But okay, let me play the devil's advocate here. So, but with Christianity, okay, we have some horrible history where we're mm-hmm. burning heretics at the stake. We're not doing things that are Christ-like. We're selling, you know, tickets into heaven kind of thing, you know. Yeah. We're we're doing some horrible things. Mm-hmm. However, the where we are today has kind of produced this type of fruit where in general Christians are known for being, well, Okay. All right. I'm Go just, ahead. I'm in just, general, I just stuck my foot in my mouth. But general, you know, hopefully, genuine Christians that you meet on the street are, you know, they wave the banner of love. <laughs> I'm just yeah. thinking, like in political terms, <laughs> Christians <laughs> are known for hating everything. But it, but you know, I, you know what I'm saying? Like in, on, on the ground, you're going to meet people that that profess Christ, and they're probably going to be pretty loving. That's kind of their their hallmark. That's like who they are as far as that religion has produced. Christianity has produced this type of person. In Islam, John Bennett... We're just talking about the monks, right? I mean, that's the... Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Howard, you have to determine what what point in history are we talking about. Are we talking about today? Are we talking about in the United States? Are we talking about in the South? Are we talking about in in politics? How about just Oklahoma? How about just this one particular guy in Oklahoma who is claiming to be a believer, and he's telling everybody that they need to be wary of any Muslim. Right. I mean, there's certainly not much love in uh, what I would say Christ-like character coming out of a lot of the rhetoric that we see being spewed from some Christians. You're right. You're right. You win. So we have to be very very careful about how we uh, impose sort of what what we're going to use to be the judgmental factors of any particular religion. If, if we're not willing to do it ourselves to our own context, right. we need to be careful. Because we, we all have, obviously, differing views of Christianity. I mean, look at uh, Westboro Baptist Church, the hate church. Oh, but, but they're not Christian. Yeah, see, That's we, what we say. Yeah, we do. And or, so, what, what, let's think of it in those terms. I would say, when, when my atheist friend comes to me and says, you Christians are a bunch of bigots... Right. You Christians are a bunch of racists. You Christians are a bunch of uh, people that hate, uh, and they have a whole list. And I just want to look at them and say, "Why don't you quit defining for me who I'm supposed who to I'm be. supposed to be, what right. I believe?" Let just because you, you saw all these other people that believed all these other things, and you want to tell me what I'm supposed to be because of what Westboro Baptist did, or because of what happened in this particular century of Christian history. Or your Sunday school when you were a kid and somebody was mean to you. Or, How infuriating right. is that? It is. So it, why do we do it to Muslims? Because we can. <laughs> <laughs> because it gets us elected, Trevor. Yeah. It gets us elected. No, we, we have to be careful. I, I, I don't want to use the word fair, but I, that's what I feel like saying. I don't, I don't reason I don't like the word fair is my son says, oh, it's not fair. Um, <laughs> but he doesn't mean it. Yeah. <laughs> he means to, it, I didn't get my way. <laughs> I think, I think what we're at here is third grade theology. Right. Again, uh, treating people the way we would want to be treated. So 
Howard, I don't know how you feel about it when somebody comes along and pulls one verse out of the Bible and says, you see, the Bible is a violent text. Right. I want to knock him in the nose. Is this, is this a safe place? <laughs> and prove, just... Yeah. And show that it's a violent text. No. Right. Dang it. You got me again. You no. got me again. But we do that with Muslims. And now here's the reality. Um, is Islam capable of producing violence? That's, I think, the big question that we were we were talking about yeah. earlier, because this particular representative, he was saying that uh, the true nature of Islam, and right. I have uh, colleagues that would argue there is a true nature of Islam, and it is violent, so let's, let's hear that perspective as well. Right. So, tell me. Well, okay, so how do you, how do you end up with people reading the same text, producing very different ideologies and theologies and practices? Interpretation. There you go. You have people, right? Yeah. That's where everything goes awry. Dang it. It's always the problem. You have people people reading and interpreting. And so when you think about Islam, you can think about it in terms of historically, uh, let's put it into terms that uh, we can understand for a Christian's sake. Okay. Um, Think about the Catholic Church all the way up until the Reformation. Yes. You, as a uh, Christian, as a Catholic, did not have the freedom to read the text for yourself and come up with your own interpretations. Those were kind of handed down, right? Well, not only that, most of the population probably were illiterate at that point. There you go. You weren't even reading the text. You didn't get that opportunity. And it was in Latin. Mm-hmm. And the service was in Latin. Okay. So you. you <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I get carried away. So, within uh, a similar context within Islam, uh, they also have sort of, uh, I guess you could say, like the Catholic Church, they have these schools of law that are going to hand down sort of the ways in which things need to be interpreted and the ways in which Islam needs to be lived in the certain context of the time. And so. Throughout, throughout the history of Islam, you have different representations, and they're figuring out ways, how do we want Islam to be lived out in the 21st century? So that's what exists within the majority of the Muslim world. So kind of like a, a, a living, breathing Islam, a folk Islam, the people Islam. Well, I mean, just an orthodox Islam that you have these certain teachings and you have these certain beliefs and practices and how those practices get fleshed out, well, that, those, those determinations are not made by a guy reading his Quran in his room at night. Okay. But you do have some people that have these kind of off-the-wall interpretations where they say, no, we need to be uh, fighting against the infidel. And so they take these verses out of the Quran and they say that we want to fight the jihad, the holy war, or we want to struggle against the West. And they come up with their own interpretations. And then you have these splinter groups like the Salafi Muslims, which would be a good example for the jihadists that you have in ISIS. And now I know what you're thinking. Uh, listeners are thinking, so you're saying that if they just read it themselves, they would all come up with this radical interpretation. And that's we have to stop doing that. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying it's possible. But the vast majority of Muslims and the vast majority of the commentators and the scholars are not coming to those conclusions. But you do have some individuals that are coming to those conclusions. I don't know if you guys can hear it or not, but there's my dog again. It's just about every time during the day that mailman comes by, my dog goes crazy. We try to record around the mailman. So, so mailwoman. Sorry. Anyway, so uh, within Islam, you have to have the consensus of the scholars, um, which is extremely difficult to do. Right, because um, they're all over. There you go. And so there's all of these things that have to happen within Islam before these sort of uh, 
rulings take place that are going to kind of depict the way the religion goes. And so you've had that throughout the history of Islam. And uh-huh. so when you have this one particular guy, for instance, for ISIS or Ayman al-Zawahiri or any of these other uh, radical leaders, um, they're kind of off on their own. Now, they do have a, a following. It's not a large following, but they're off on their own. They're outside of the bounds of what would cons- be considered orthodoxy. Okay, got it. I'm so, trekking with you. So the big question is, well, which is the true interpretation? There is none. I, I say no. Well, let me ask you, Howard, what, is it, what does it mean? Uh, what makes a person Muslim? Submission to God. All right. Submission to God. Anything else? The five pillars. Okay, five pillars. <laughs> am I doing well, okay? <laughs> what am I doing? No, okay, let's, let's think about this for a second. Do you know any Muslims? Yes. Um, of the Muslims that you know, do you know any that don't participate in the five pillars? Well, the pil- pil- pilgrimage, right, is one that, right, that but some, all- some Muslims cannot. Right, but all the other Muslims you know are regularly giving the zakat, the, the, the tithe that they're supposed to be giving. Probably not. Okay. That's uh, my guess. Yeah. I, I mean, didn't, I didn't really ask him, but, you know, just looking at tithing in the well, church. Okay, let's just look at fasting. They're all fasting the whole month of Ramadan faithfully, right? <sighs> That's a tough one, too, man. Because uh, yeah, in Ramadan, were... <laughs> Ramadan you, can't, you can't even smoke, right? Right. And you can't have sex. Nope. But you know Muslims. <laughs> I mean, pause. How, many, how many times do you remember being in Muslim countries where you would see Muslims that the more you got to know them, that some of them would show up at your house because you could eat during right, Ramadan? Right, 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 right. But were they Muslim? Yes. Right? Because they said they were Muslim. Uh-huh. So if we get down to it, if you have somebody that says, hey, I'm a Muslim, and they have this sort of basic belief and practice, who are we to come along and say, no, you're not? Right. We're not even part of the community to be, you know, sort of throwing people out of the community. Uh, but you have Muslims that have this wide array of belief and practice. Some are fasting, some are not fasting. Somebody, well, they have to at least be uh, a believer in one God. Listen, I've met Muslims that are clearly, when it comes down to it, atheistic in their belief, but yet they still call themselves Muslim. I, I guess I could see that with Christians. There are a lot of Christians that believe some things that are pretty wonky but would still consider calling themselves Christians. Yeah, and so Christians right. have a hard time answering what does it mean to be Christian, but we're so good at saying what it means to be Muslim. Yeah, you're right. So in, in, in my opinion, let's stop determining what makes a person Muslim, and let's start asking Muslims, are you Muslim? Right. And if the answer is yes, well, tell me about that. What does it mean to be Muslim? But but despite all that, the, the, the big question is, okay, so, and I had a colleague ask me this recently, if I just read the Quran with the correct historical interpretation and use uh, the best hermeneutics possible, will I come up with a radical interpretation or a peaceful interpretation? They want a yes or no answer, of course, right? Yeah. And I said, that's what I want. It's not that simple. It is way too complex to just break it down into this sort of, what will I get, yes or no, radical or not radical, because you have all of these different uh, ideas. So one, one, for instance, that we have to talk about, this will help us to understand, and I hear people throwing this around, even our, our uh, uh, politician friend threw this word out there, he talked about abrogation. Right. And so he says that, uh, well, what people need to realize is that Islam has some peaceful stuff, but it also has a ton of violent stuff. I think he said 99% or 90% of it was violent. He said 90%. Clearly he's not read the Quran because 90% of the Quran is not violent. Um, But there is violence. Certainly there's violence. Um, But the violent parts of the Quran... Um, do tend to come in the later part of the Quran. Now, here's the deal. When you're looking at the Quran, it's not in chronological order. Kind of like the Bible. 
Right. The New Testament letters are not in chronological order. They're in order uh, longest to shortest. Well, I don't remember the New Testament. The New Testament's that way as well, right? Long, right. Uh, letters are the longest to shortest. Well, the, the Quran is the same way. Yeah. You have the first chapter called the opening, and then from that point on, it's the longest to shortest. And so there's no chronology. And so most Muslims don't know the chronology. Most Muslims don't actually even read the Quran, I would say, because it needs to be read in Arabic and it needs to be recited. It's not even a text that's really supposed to be read. It's supposed to be recited. Okay. And then within that, um, the text doesn't follow a chronological order. So how do you know? Well, you could get a list of the chronological order of the Quran and read it in that way if you wanted. You mean they don't have like 50,000 translations like we do in English? Well, they're starting. They're starting with some translations. They would be called interpretations, though, because interpretive decisions are made when you change it from the Arabic to the English. But you know what? The same things happen when you interpret, uh, when you translate the Bible. Right. Remember your first year of Greek? Oh my gosh, it was so stressful. Yeah, I you start like, realizing how do I that, make these decisions, and yeah, you realize that people uh, make interpretive decisions when they right. translate. So, yeah. anyways, that happens in the Quran as well. So they don't call them translations; they'll call them interpretations. But this idea of abrogation is the idea that the uh, if there's two verses that are in any kind of contradiction, that the later is going to cancel out the earlier. And it just so happens in Islam that the more violent interpretations are later. Right. So if you know that reading in, chrono- chrono- in chronological order. order, that's going to affect the way you interpret the text. Right. But here's the problem. Okay. Not all Muslims agree with abrogation. Ta-da! What? Yeah, that's the thing. You can say, well, there you go. It's as simple as that. If the more violent texts are in the end, and the more violent texts have abrogated the peaceful text, then Islam is thereby violent. I mean, it makes I, sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know why I'm surprised, because look at Christianity with uh, dispensationalism or... Or, or covenantalism, covenantalism right, or Arminianism, or, or Calvinism, or give me any other ism. Right, it's all it's a, like a different interpretation. I mean, they're just looking at it from different perspectives and come up with different things and um, even responses, behaviors... So there's, there's division within the Islamic scholars as to whether or not abrogation even exists within Islam. So for John Bennett to come around talking about abrogation... To just break it down into this very reductive sort of, oh yeah, later cancels earlier, later right. is more violent, that's what it is, that's it's violent. It's way too simple. Right. So the way that it kind of breaks down within the two worlds, uh, some would say that the abrogation doesn't actually apply to the Quran. So, the, do you want to hear the verse of abrogation that is often cited? Yeah. We do not abrogate a verse or cause it to be forgotten, except that which we bring forth one better or similar to it. So, that's out of uh, uh, Surah 2, uh, 106. That's the verse of abrogation. So, so it uh, sounds like it, it's talking about clarifying verses. Almost like what a lot of Christians would refer to as progressive revelation. Right. Another, another topic, but, but what it would say is, so some Muslims would say that nothing is canceled, uh, something could be clarified, but if anything is ever canceled, it has nothing to do with the Quran. It could, however, be substituted to cancel something that might have been revealed in the previous texts that were revealed, because the Quran is clear that God revealed other messages through Moses, for instance, the law. So the Torah, or the Torah, revealed to Moses, Muslims are supposed to adhere to. Wow. And then you have the Zabur, the Psalms, which were revealed to the prophet Daud, David. Wow. And then you have the Injil, or the Gospel, that was revealed to Isa al-Masih, Jesus. 
And so if there's contradiction between those previously revealed scriptures and the Quran, then the Quran should supersede or abrogate the previous scriptures. But that's not necessarily to say that there's abrogation within the Quran itself. Right, superseding itself. There you go. So some Muslims, they disagree about whether Quran even ex- uh, abrogation exists in the Quran. And then there are those that say, well, it can exist in the Quran. And if there's anything that contradicts, which I've yet to find a Muslim that has any, that has ever said there's any contradiction in the Quran. Yeah, I guess that's probably not something that they would advertise. Or... No, and so mm. even if there was abrogation in the Quran, the, the process of abrogating something is so strenuous. I mean, you have to have complete consensus of the scholars. There, It has to apply to uh, Islamic jurisprudence, meaning that there's a law. It can't be just sort of this one verse that's uh, out there and doesn't necessarily mean something. It needs to be uh, maybe uh, Muslims couldn't eat this food, but now they can eat this food, very similar to Jesus in the New Testament law. Um, But it needs to be a clear command from Muhammad substituting something. Um, There needs to be complete knowledge of the chronology of the revelation, which sometimes in the Quran there's not. Um, And so this is a huge huge issue in Islam, not something to just be kind of spouted off as a political slogan and then expect Christians to walk away and say, well, there you go. It's easy. I didn't didn't realize it was so easy. So what would you say that our response should be as educated listeners uh, of this kind of um, uh, political jargon and and reductionism? What do you think our uh, response should be? Because I think ISIS really is probably something that we do need to talk about continue to deal with in politics because it does affect our world right Mm -hmm. but at the same time not to just kind of take everything hook line and sinker um with what these what these politicians are using to uh get their get themselves elected i guess yeah i think one uh it isn't the job of a muslim to determine the true nature of islam isn't the job of a non-Muslim. A non-Muslim, yeah. Right. Uh, Muslims are debating that amongst themselves, and I don't know that they're ever going to come to a complete solution, but I, I don't understand why the non-Muslim world feels as though it has this obligation to kind of declare the true nature of Islam when they've not studied themselves. Well, you know, I think it had, probably has to do with the fact that they need to figure out who are we shooting at. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that bad? I mean, is, because we need to know clear-cut enemies. That's I think Vietnam was a, a great example of that. It was really, really hard when you couldn't figure out who your enemy was. And so they, it was almost like they had to kind of invent this enemy to make them a little bit more clear. Um, I don't know, man. I just kind of feel like with Muslims, like it's so easy for Americans, uh, for us as a public, to just take all this stuff in just so that we can have an enemy. We want to know who to blame. That's a dangerous game. Right. Dangerous game. And I think the <clears throat> one of the big problems is that when when Muslims attempt to speak out, I don't know why we do this and and for some reason I see Christians doing it probably more than any other group. Um we tell them, "Well, you don't understand the true nature of your own religion." <laughs> That's a little presumptuous. Right. And and so it's like Sam Harris when he was drawing his concentric circles saying, "Well, at the core are the radicals." Right. And so if, like that's if, the foundation. That's yeah. what yeah, Islam is. That's the truest Islam. Yep. So that that in my mind seems a bit bizarre. What do you stand to gain by convincing a Muslim that he doesn't understand his own religion and right. that he should really be radical? Yeah. Calling the, the peace, uh, peaceful ones uh, nominal. Nominal as though they don't understand. Yeah, that that's bizarre to me. So I, I think here's what here's what we take away from this. Um, one, it really doesn't matter what you know about Islam. Um. Y- 
what you know about Islam and what you know about what the Quran says, just go ahead and assume that that doesn't matter. What matters most to you is what does the Muslim sitting across from me believe about Islam? What does he or she know about Islam? Right. That's more important. Right. And that also leads us to relationship. Yeah. And you so know, same finding that out and same thing with Muhammad. Yeah. I hear Christians. Uh, I mean, I think probably more Christians, non-Muslims have written about Muhammad than Muslims. Wow. And so we need to stop telling Muslims, hey, do you, let me tell you about Muhammad and start asking them, you yeah. know, what, what do you believe about Muhammad? Right. And so uh, two and then. With Muhammad, you, you need to stop criticizing Muhammad, especially believers, because uh, you do not need to make Muhammad bad in order to make Jesus look good. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would we compare the two? Why do we bring the two up together? Um, let's just talk about what we know, which is Jesus. Right. And they're interested. Absolutely, they're interested, because Jesus is all through the Quran, more than 90 times mentioned in the Quran. Right. And, and so we need to talk about Jesus. And they probably look at us as, okay, well, they know about Isa, they know about Jesus. Yeah. And so they're probably interested to talk about that. And yeah, more so than we, we think. Yeah. So, uh, and so not talking, uh, telling Muslims what they believe, not telling Muslims about what they should believe, uh, about Islam or about Muhammad, uh, talk about what we do know. Um, when you see some sort of political rhetoric, uh, that gets forwarded to you in an email, uh, I would say, Here's sort of the filtering mechanism that I encourage people to consider. Is what you're reading causing you to love God more and to love Muslims more? Wow. And yeah, if, if, the answer is, if the answer is yes, forward it on. Go for it. Right. Does but it if, cause you to hate, to generalize, to... To be fearful, to bigot, be whatever, you know? Bigotrous thoughts. <laughs> if, it's, if it's causing you to be uh, fearful and... Uh, hate or any of those sort of things, then, and don't, don't forward it. You might even want to email the guy or girl back and just say, you know, uh, this sort of stuff is not helping us in what we're called to do with Muslims and in anything that causes a stumbling block for you, um, to do what you know you're supposed to do as a believer, you should get rid of. Yeah. I mean, that's how we kind of live our faith too. I mean, things that cause us to stumble, not even just with Islam, right. But just as Christians, we try to eliminate that, yeah. Yeah, and we know that we're called to love. We know that we're called to share the gospel with Muslims. We know that we're called to introduce them to Christ and ask them to follow Christ. We know that. And so if there's something else in our life that is causing us to stumble towards that and not, not do that or stumble before we get to that, we should get rid of it. Right. This kind of leads us to our carpe diem of the day, which is Reza Aslan. Aslan. And uh, so he kind of said something that uh, the reason why we gave him the carpe diem this uh, this week is because he does something that kind of helps us with our, our vision. What we try to do here is to kind of enlighten people, to, to help people see in a different perspective, help them to understand. And his quote is, most people... The vast majority of people who have li a lived experience of religion bring their own political and social and economic and ideological perspectives and prejudices to the scriptures. It's precisely why two people can read this exact same verse of scripture and come away with absolutely conflicting, opposing interpretations of it. This is so basic. Why is, it, why is this hard for people to understand? And it's kind of like what we were talking about with um, uh, trying to you know, pigeonhole um, Muslims saying, hey, this is what you believe when it's not that simple. 
And I love that he just be able to he's able to share that and, and share it in just such a uh, clear way, man. It's the people, and just like Trevor was saying, it's the people that that make the difference. It's not just uh, the the scripture by itself. It's when people read it and put actions behind it that change everything. Yeah, one interesting thing about Reza Aslan is he's got uh, well that'll be our our recommendation for a resource is his book um, No God. But God, which is an excellent, excellent resource. Um, but he wrote another book here recently. I didn't care for it as much, um, but he was highly criticized for writing it because he is a Muslim writing about Jesus. Right. I uh, mean, that was amazing to me that uh, it was a Fox News anchor that was basically saying that you should not be writing about Jesus because you don't follow Jesus. You're a Muslim and Muslims should not be writing about Jesus. And I'm thinking to myself, how many Christians have written about Muhammad? Is it is it because I don't follow uh, a certain religion that I can't have opinions or think about other religions? And Reza Aslan is more than qualified to write a book. Um, on religion and even Jesus, um, but he was criticized highly for writing his book on Jesus. One thing that I would have focused on is the fact that he thinks that he probably could affirm the death of Jesus on the cross. And I'm thinking, here we have a Muslim writing that the death of Jesus on the cross, and instead of focusing on that, we focus on the fact that, well, you shouldn't be writing about Jesus because you're Muslim. Yeah, which is strange because Isa is, or Jesus, is in the Quran. Yes, yes, definitely. And he he was affirming the death. Of Jesus, and we were kind of writing him off. No, no, explain that like in 10 seconds. Why that's so, you know, such a big jump for a Muslim to to, to believe. Well, you, you have a verse in the Quran that says they boast that they killed the Christ, but they killed him not. It was only made to appear to be so. And so Muslims look at that and they say that Jesus wasn't actually crucified, but somebody was uh, either crucified in his place or he really didn't die on the cross. Maybe he went to the grave still alive. So there's even within the belief about Jesus's death, on the cross, there's a, a variety of belief systems around that within Islam, but the, the majority would say that he didn't die on the cross; somebody else died in his place. Right. So Reza Aslan say, saying that aligns more uh, with what we believe. Right. And, and and within historical Islam, within the oldest commentaries, the death of Jesus on the cross was certainly a possibility, and so he was simply saying that it's a possibility that maybe he did die on the cross. And uh, yeah, it, I can't get over the fact that. When a Muslim was wanting to talk about Jesus, we told him he's not allowed. Right. All right, so why should we read No God But God? What is that about? Well, that's uh, Reza Aslan's sort of uh, theology of Islam, looking at Islam, understanding Islam in the ah. history, in the context of history. Um, he For- is a Western scholar. He is Iranian by birth, lives in the United States. Uh, actually, I don't know if he lives in the United States. He may live in the UK, but he's he's got a, a degree in uh, sociology. He's got a, a PhD um, as well. Um, but he's he's a in my opinion, a refreshing sort of viewpoint on looking at Islam rather than just kind of having these uh, books that are Islam is this or Islam is that. He kind of broadens it a little bit for us. Right. Okay. Well, we still want to hear your comments, especially on some of the questions that we talked about today because your your input really kind of helps us guide the show where you're interested. And we really thank you for listening. Yeah, and I'm kind of curious if you guys would write in... uh, Whatever states or whatever countries uh, you live in, um, I know that we have uh, listeners probably coming from a lot of different backgrounds. Are do you, do you sense that Muslims are used as political pawns, or is Islam always in the discussion with uh, elections in in your part of the world or in your state? Just curious. Right, love to hear from you. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. 